This week's show, we have a special tribute to a Canadian sports legend, the one and only George Chevallo. Joe Tilly Sports, coming up! Welcome to the program. Today, we have a special tribute for a Canadian boxing legend. Born and raised in Toronto, a former amateur champion. He held the Canadian heavyweight belt for 21 years, a record that definitely will never be broken. He fought for the world title against the best in the game. He fought Floyd Patterson, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Jimmy Young. Twice, he went the distance with the legendary Muhammad Ali. He beat Cleveland Williams. He knocked out Jerry Corey and Doug Jones. Ladies and gentlemen, a tribute today to the legendary George Chevallo. And joining us is George's son, Mitchell. He's a longtime educator and a coach, uh, once named Canada's high school coach of the year. Mitch, glad to have you here. Thank All you. Around, great, great to be guy, here, Mitch. Thank you. And, great and to another be here, great Joe. Guy. Was... Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, awesome to have you here, Mitch. Uh, boxing historian, you, Lou Eisen, who's written for Ring Magazine, Boxing Monthly, The Fight Network, Ringside Report, KO Digest, Beatboxers.com, The Toronto Star. He's been on CBC, ESPN, TSN. He's on the selection committee for the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Lou has just sent a new book to publication entitled Boxing's Greatest Controversies, Blunders, blood feuds and bad decisions welcome to the program lou thank you thank you and i just wanted to say that um uh for mitch educator of the year that runs in the family because george's granddaughter won won uh i think uh student of the year right in yeah. canada yeah, my my so. niece rachel who who passed uh she was uh, 30 when she passed. She was an educator. Uh, yeah, she was she was a brilliant student and a, a young woman who had the, her whole life ahead of her. And she she uh, unfortunately died of cancer very young. So tragic. But uh, her she had an eventful 30 or 31 years. So uh, we take some solace in that. But uh, life life's harsh. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Sorry about that. Well, I didn't you, mean to. We, we, uh, I just wanted to say that yeah, the educational thing runs deep in George's family. Thank you. Well, we know that we know that tragedy has, has certainly hit your family, Mitchell, which we get into a little bit later. But first of all, I just want, I want to ask you how how your dad is doing, and uh, I know he's eighty three now, and and uh, probably not really well, right? No, you're, uh, you're right, Joe. Uh, as is the case with uh, all fighters who have some uh, career of uh, length and repute. Um, he, he suffered dementia. It came on like a tsunami uh, the last few years. I'd say the last uh, eight or nine years, it came on heavily. And uh, uh, he is now uh, in deep in the throes of dementia. He, he's in a is in a, a home, uh, a retirement home with, uh, a, 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 with a facility that helps him with his memory care. Um, they've been very good, but um, not 
um, they, they were subject, like everybody else, uh, and George actually uh, had COVID, but uh, he recovered. Can you believe it? The, that rocker yeah. Gibraltar recovered. They asymptomatic, and he, and he recovered. Uh, but um, in, in terms of his cognitive capacity, um, yeah, he's 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 nowhere near what he used to be, as is expected for anybody uh, um, at 83. But for a, an individual who had uh, that lengthy uh, career during that era, uh, you know, you think about all the all the punishment he absorbed and and gave out, and it, that included both. Uh, uh, it, it, during the fights and inspiring, um, I, I'm amazed that he hung in there for so long. And uh, you know, if you think of his contemporaries, he's he's outlasted them all. So uh, again, that's a tribute to his resilience, which was established very early in his career. Like he, he, if George was one thing, he was resilient in every facet in his life, and he he continues to show that now, even in his advanced years. So um, I'm still very proud of him that way. Well, we're, uh, we, uh, we send all our best wishes to you and your family and to George. Of course, next time you see him, please give us a big hug for him. Maybe he won't, uh, it won't register for him, but I, I mean, we, you know, the meaning is certainly there and, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, he, the fact that he's, uh, that he, uh, had COVID and got through it doesn't surprise me at all because he was, like you no. mentioned, probably the most resilient athlete Canada's ever produced. I, right, so, that, that's his last knockout victory. Yeah. Right. It's a knockout victory, right? You know, yeah, well, Colt came and he said it's not going to go down this way. Knocked it out. Yeah, that's that, that's look, right. Look. Uh, yeah. So, just, so the doctors, so when they sent him um, from his residence to uh, to the hospital, the um, the doctor phoned me up and said, "What? Uh, do you know why they they sent him here?" I said, "Well, he's got COVID." They go, "Yeah, but you know." Um, is there a reason why they sent him? I said, well, apparently he wasn't eating or drinking anything because when you get COVID, it, it affects your, your ability to taste and smell and, and, and you get lethargic and they were worried about him that way. The doctor said, yes, but I'm looking at all his vital signs. <laughs> They're fantastic for an 83-year-old, <laughs> like blood pressure, sugar levels, you know, uh, heart rate, all those, the, the tests that came back, they go, he's amazing. So, um... You know, I, we can look forward to him being around for um, a little while longer. And uh, as long as he's safe and comfortable, which is the key, you know, for anybody when they get a little older uh, in a diminished state, uh, if we can keep that going, then, you know, that's that's the best we can hope for. And, we, and I look forward to help him uh, stay that way, safe and comfortable. It's the best way to describe it. Well, let's talk a little bit about his career, right? Okay, go ahead, Lou. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to mention something. I... I I, I repeat stories a lot. My great uncle David was your father's doctor for his first professional fight. I don't know if I told you this. And he came no. into his office. He came in in 1955, I think it was. And mm -hmm. so my uncle Dave looks at him and says, you're in great shape. And he said, we're going to take your weight. So your father just had a towel around him. So he stepped in the hallway on the, on the um, scale. And my uncle said the 25 women in the office swooned all at the same time. <laughs> like all, all their faces came deep. Whoa! Oh, and all he could hear was, but you're married, but he's gorgeous. Look at his body. 
Well, all I can, yeah, when George was in good shape, he had uh, many female admirers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, hundreds of thousands, to be more correct. Yeah. But yes. Yeah, and, it was a and, finely tuned machine. <laughs> and it was, hey, yeah, and it was a other, swinging. It was the swinging sixties too, guys. Remember, it was all like you know, yeah. <laughs> a different yeah. time period. Right? <laughs> there he is. The There's the young man. Um. <laughs> I was on ESPN. Angelo Dundee died in 212. So around 210, this is 10, this is uh, 11 years ago. Uh, Angelo died, or before Angelo died. So last year, we were on ESPN radio at the Hall of Fame, which you've been to many times in Canastota, New York. And so they were talking about great fighters from the past. And, and the announcer, Brian Kenny, said, Angelo, how would George Chevalo do against the Klitschko brothers? And he said he'd probably take Vladimir in about 10 rounds and he'd probably take his brother in about nine. And they said, why nine or 10? And, and Angelo said, well, he's 67. I mean, you got to give him time to warm up. <laughs> well, listen, listen, Angelo, Angelo's not unlike uh, a lot of people who watch boxing. Uh, they have a tendency to... Um, probably overrate the time period that uh, they they became enamored with the sport and they were productive in the sport as he was as a trainer and, and manager and and um the Klitschko's take a lot of heat but you know what in retrospect they're pretty good athletes for big guys and uh yeah they uh, I'm, absolutely. I'm not i'm not going to venture a guess but you know uh, as to how george would have done but um they, they would have i'll tell you what they would have been an act it would have been an action fight between either one of them and George, right? So um, I, I don't, I don't like to disparage the modern guys. A lot of people do, uh, but there's some, there are some still great modern day athletes oh, in boxing. Yeah, absolutely. But the, for most of George's career, if not all, he feasted on those guys because those yeah. guys, I'm, I'm not kids, but guys like that, like Dijon, Ernie Trell, didn't have good balance. Yeah, you know? and, and, and a guy and, like that against George took a beating. And the one thing about George, George had tremendous, uh, you know this uh, yourself, Lou, and, and of course, Joe being a former fighter, George had a capacity to, st to stay strong the whole of the fight, right? Right, like he some got guys strong the Three or four rounds. Yeah, he could sustain it. And he, and he did that because of his maniacal and obsessive training methodologies, right? So... Um, yeah, that 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 always, uh, you know, when you when you come into a fight with the confidence of being in great shape, then you you can assert your will uh, for a longer period of time than the other individual can. And and um, I, I love watching fights where George wears people down. Like I, I love jump. that because that's, yeah. that's that's a, a battle of wills and attrition, right? So that to me, be, right. that's when fighting becomes really primal beyond all the technique mm -hmm. when it becomes a battle of will like that. And you know, guys, because you're both boxing fans, the greatest fights of all time is where you see that battle like displayed up front. And you know, the Frazier fight, the first one, that was just like, you know, un unbelievable. There's George against Muhammad. Boom. Come on, Georgie, yeah. close the gap. <laughs> Holding his hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He blocked that one. Uh, there, there he goes to the body, ripping him to the body. Well, let's nice. let's yeah. talk about those. Let's talk about those two fights with Ali. Okay, so so uh, both happened to be in Canada, which was pretty cool as, as it worked out. But uh, 
you know, not many people gave George a shot in, in, in either fight. And in both cases, uh, you know, uh, when the fight no was one. over, George was still throwing. And, and uh, Ali was the one who was worse for the wear, right? Yeah, well, yeah, uh, absolutely. go ahead, Lou. Go ahead. I'll, I'll fill in after you. Well, go ahead. I, I, absolutely. No one gave George a shot. In fact, it's, it's hard to have any respect for the Ontario Boxing Commission. They wouldn't license it as a world title fight, as mentioned. Everywhere else on earth, this was the world title fight. But the Ontario Boxing Commission, whose only job is to make sure that the tickets printed are legitimate, to collect taxes, and to have a doctor present, said, well, we don't think George is good enough. Even though he's rated number three on earth, we don't think he's good enough. It's not their job to rate fighters. So he goes in there, and no one gives him a chance. Here's George, who's never been staggered in his career, never been hurt. The best, as Al Bernstein said, the premier body puncher, he said this recently, of the last, you know, 60, 70 years with George Chevallo. He goes in and pounds Ali's body, gives him the fight of a lifetime, and people are stunned. And right after that, right after the fight, there was an interview Muhammad did with Thomas Hauser, his future biographer. And he asked him, he was talking about, you know, sports writers say that you shouldn't and he said i'm tired of sports writers you know nothing all of you said that shavala wouldn't go two rounds that was the toughest fight I ever had in my life it, it wrecked me I, my side still hurt then you said i shouldn't be fighting a guy like patterson and patterson was easy so he said look at joe i mean look at him there he's not taking a step back no, he won't give in no no we'll and, and, and everybody's yeah when everybody thinks you know people who don't know boxing often talk about it in very cliched modes, right? So the the sense that George was just a, a punching bag, and you you any you know uh, a thoughtful analysis of what had just transpired there. George is landing punches. He's blocking punches. Look, yeah. he just blocked through there, encountered with a left hook. Blocks that. Blocks that. Got a jab in. Misses with a hook. Blocks that. It's it, he didn't just sit there taking punches. People talk in such cliches because they don't know how to analyze and break down a fight, right? To them, it's 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 super simple. Absolutely. But it's probably one, and I think both of you will agree, one of the most difficult uh, 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 psychological, physical uh, events you could ever be involved in. And things are happening at rapids. Look at like George just put four punches together against Muhammad there. And they, they talk about the George book. being an Andrew Wall who just walks in waiting, look at not getting hit with everything. He blocks most of those shots there. He blocked those two. You know, so it, yeah. when people say that, yeah, uh, I, I think, I don't know, they're, they're trying to sound like they're, they're knowledgeable of what's going on. But what, the more you talk to people about boxing, really, uh, the more you find out how much they, they don't know about it. The, the, what they say often displays, to me, what they don't know as opposed to what they do know. So, yeah, um, you know, when, when you talk about George um, not getting the respect going into the fight, you have to remember that he'd lost two of the three previous fights. Controversially, I might add, because... He lost the fight to Terrell. Then he went over to, to England and he fought Eduardo Corletti. And the English boxing board uh, so did not want George to fight Henry Cooper that that they awarded the fight to Corletti. And Corletti apparently didn't even land a punch during the whole fight. All he did was run. And then 
England at the time. Yeah. The referee just goes over and raises one man's hand, <laughs> and that's that's the decision. So the, to discredit George from ever fighting Cooper, and then here in Toronto, uh, there are all kinds of hijinks going on with, with supposedly with the mob and and Terrell and his handlers and things of that nature, and the referee Sammy Lovespoon being being threatened along with Irv Ungerman, all kinds all of fact. Uh, that's all fact. Yeah. that's fact. Yeah, that's so, all documented. So, so when people say, yeah, he yeah. lost two of the three previous fights, they don't give you the background info that goes with that, right? So, yeah, oh, you need to look at the record, but, but, but you, you need the backstory. And that's where people like you come in, Lou, who fill in the yeah. backstory. So it's good, good on you, brother. Right. Well, I've got to tell you. So tell us about all, the trail fight, Lou. Yeah. Well, well, I asked Henry Cooper years later at the Hall of Fame, how come he never fought Chevallo? And he said, I didn't even want to meet George socially. <laughs> I didn't want to get in the ring with him. I didn't want to, I, he's too strong and, you know, he's a super heavyweight. So it's not in the kind of fight I fight and I bleed just wasn't going to work out for me. With Ernie Terrell, it was different. Ernie Terrell was a mob fighter. Uh, when they took Ali's, uh, you know, when you, when you sign for a title fight, you often sign for a rematch if you're the challenger just in case you win. And so Ali had to do that with Liston, whose people were mobsters. Mm -hmm. And WBA said, we don't like rematches, so they took his title away, WBA title, and they had a fight between Eddie Macon and Ernie Terrell. And before the fight, Eddie Macon said, I don't know why I'm fighting Terrell. You know, they're going to give him the fight. And they did. And Terrell was probably the dirtiest fighter of his era, one of the top dirtiest fighters of all time. And so he fights uh, George up here in Toronto. And uh, Bernie um, Glickman's allowed in, and Bernie Glickman is a uh, hired killer for the mob. How he got past customs, I'll never know. Um, <laughs> but it's on record with the RCMP and the FBI that he threatened Irv Ungerman, and he, he threatened um, Samuel Offspring. Those aren't rumors. Those are actual records that were entered into a court. There's a standing Senate subcommittee on, on organized crime that started in the 50s, it still exists today. You can go there and you can look up on the U.S. government site how Bernie Glickman threatened those two people. So the fight goes, and I, I, I think around the ninth or 10th round, you could, I, I stopped counting by then, but I think I, I got up to like 89 fouls that Terrell had landed. Terrell, it's the only time 89. I saw George... 89, and it's still going on. It's the only time... And all George's fights ever, where I saw him turn to the referee and say, "He's thumbing me," and you watch it, and thumbing he's not making, yeah. he's not hiding it. He's thumbing George on purpose. He gets him in close. He's headbutting him. He's using his knee, stepping on his foot. He's he's using his forearms like that. Every time he gets in, he hits him with the forearm, and he's fouling. And the mm -hmm. only time George complains is with the thumb. Thumbed him the whole time. Can I? And when you're thumbing a guy, you're taking away his livelihood. Yeah, you're right. So you can detach a retina. Uh, I, I must tell you that George said after the last time uh, Terrell thumbed him, George gave him a beautiful head butt. He said he timed it gorgeously, so it looked like a punch was soon to fall, and he sliced him a little bit. He said, I got him for that one. <laughs> he stopped thumbing me yeah. late in the fight. Up. He said, I should have done it earlier. That's what George said. But He but was right, the, because that's, you have to, because that's the only thing they listen to. Oh, they, it's it, it's. But even even, even with all that, though, he, he, the decision that Terrell got was was bogus. In, in addition to that, right? I mean, it, George well, look won at the Terrell's fight. face. Look at Terrell's yeah. face after, and look at George's face. Who would you rather be? 
George yeah, landed well, more punches on then, Ernie Terrell, and he was the effective aggressor. He won more rounds. He won the fight. It was stolen from him by the mafia. Can can I can I can I say when you want if you ever get an opportunity to watch that fight, watch how many times Terrell holds. All the I've time, seen, the octopus. I've seen fights where a guy was disqualified for holding. Yeah. Now, now I I don't blame Sammy Lovespring in any way, shape, or form. That's, you know, water under the bridge. And my dad and Sammy had beef after. But they, they, I want to say, thankfully, they they became friends later. Because it must be a hell of a thing to have your family threatened by the mob and all that kind of stuff. I get that. I get that. But what, what irks me about Sammy is he did not warn Ernie Terrell once for holding holding is against the rules i've seen fights prior and after that where fighters were disqualified for holding disqualified i lost count after like 90 holds where they were 90 just grabbing the you can't do that you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to fight no. so um uh it, it, it amazes that fight will always go down i i know george was very frustrated about that one and i know i know in his in his darkest moments, when he looked back with some regret on his career, he always regretted he didn't get that. You know what kind of hurt him, too? I think the fact that it took place in Toronto and that still happened, right? It'd be yeah, different if you find it. You know, you know, so he always felt like mm, a second-class sports citizen in Toronto a little bit. And uh, he, 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 I mean, that, that hurt. He, yeah, his relationship certainly with the with the uh, with the Canadian Boxing Federation and the Ontario Boxing uh, Commission. Uh, yeah, th- those were strained relationships for a long time, and it goes back to what really transpired there, Lou. Uh, that you saw you talk about, you know, hanky panky going on there. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you're 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 giving a conservative estimate when you say he was held ninety times, hundreds of times, and yeah, and Henry counting after ninety. Yeah, Henry Akinwande. Right, and Henry Akinwande was disqualified after holding Lennox Lewis seven or eight times. And the referee said, "That's it. You're not here to fight. You're done." Yeah, and 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 that's why Ali called Terrell the octopus. And Ali said, "This is Ernie Terrell fighting. Thumb, 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 elbow, hold." And that was Terrell. Terrell was beaten thoroughly. He knew he was beaten. The fans knew it. The judges knew it. And the mob just said, no, it's not going to go down that way. So when people say, you know, boxing was better when the mob controlled it, for who? Who was it better for? George yeah. won the title. It's better for their guys. It's better for their guys. That's yeah, right. I said, and their guys ended up broke. You know, I said to George, right. you got to start billing yourself, this is several years ago, as a WBA World Heavyweight Champion because you won it. And if you don't let people know the truth, you know, you won the title. You beat him. He knows you beat him. Look at his face after. You had nothing on right. your face. Let's, he was completely beaten up. Let's talk about another fight that George won that didn't get the decision for, a, a big fight, and that was uh, Floyd Patterson in, in Madison Square Garden. Another another fight that uh, there, there were some complications for that one too. Lou, I know you, you got some insight on that one. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Angelo told me, he said, there's no doubt everyone knew George won the fight. He said, also, you know Ron Lipton, who Mitch knows, and I'm, I'm sure you know yeah. the referee and loves George, uh, said he, I was sitting ringside. So was Bud Schulberg, 
and Norman Mailer. I spoke to both of them on the set of Cinderella Man, and they said George won that fight. Everyone knew it, but Angelo said he didn't get the decision for several reasons, one of which was the fight was in New York. Patterson is a New York fighter. He's a former heavyweight world champion, so they're going to give it to him. All he had to do was stand on his feet to the end, and that's a very salient point because George's people wanted the fight to be 15 rounds. Patterson said there's no fight unless it goes 12 rounds. So better a fight than no fight. If the fight goes Luke, 12, Luke, 15 Luke, rounds. Can I correct you there? Can I, can, I, I think yes. Patterson initially argued for a 10-round fight, and then they made a compromise with a 12. He actually wanted a 10-rounder, right. if right. I'm not mistaken. Sorry. I, I could yes. be wrong. No, no, you're right. And, and Sorry. Then, and, and, and we all know if the fight goes 15, Patterson collapses in the 13th round. George beat him from pillar to post. Patterson didn't fight again for almost a year. He was injured. He took tremendous beating. The fans in New York were stunned. The New York writers who were good to George were stunned. And in the book on Floyd Patterson by William Strawn, they said Patterson got a gift in two fights. The first one was Yvonne Durrell in the 50s, and the second one was George Chevallo in the 60s, where they said Chevallo pitched a shutout. I, I gave George 10 of the 12 rounds. Most people did. Some people had it higher, and then they just went and screwed him. Because George didn't have the muscle behind him to go say, no, you're not going to do that to me. Yeah. I, was I, never I, to say I, again. I, I, I look, yeah, it's true. That's true. He, he was never the same again. The thing that interests me about the Patterson fight was the way my dad reflects on it. Like, to score a fight is, like, Patterson, I'll give Patterson and D'Amato very much credit in this regard. George would win the, you know, the first two and a half minutes of the round, and then Patterson would flurry for the last 10, 15 seconds to leave an impression in the judges' minds. So a lot of it goes to, like, the way you, 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 like, metacognitively, the way you think about a fight, how do I score it? What is it the last impression that counts? Or can I, in realistic terms, assess the whole of the round? Because normally we, we, we have a better remembrance of what happened most recently, as opposed to right. what happened farther back in our memory. So I, I give, I give, they fought an intelligent fight that day. Uh, and the way my father remembers that fight, I, I, I kind of feel good about because, you know, he said, yeah, Patterson got it. I thought I won the fight, and Patterson got it. Was in his hometown, former champ. But he goes, one thing you got to remember: that was the fight of the year in 1965. The Ring magazine said yeah. of all the fights that transpired in 1965, mm -hmm. that was the fight of the year. And when you think back, when you think back on George's career, and people have said, oh yeah, he was, you know, applauding a, a Neanderthal-like caveman who didn't have anything in the way of skill. You know, I turn to them and say, listen, my old man fought. The fight of the year in 1965, Ring Magazine, right? Yeah, there it is. Uh, I say, what did you? What did your dad do? <laughs> so I pull it's rank a little bit. That's way. That's way my dad will be remembered. And, and and I know when my dad wanted to feel good about his career, he always would look back and say, you know what? I fought the fight of the year in 1965. Yeah, the judges Mitch. said I came up short, but I can live with that. Mitch, it's considered to be the greatest non-title heavyweight fight of all time, and it's one of the top five or six great heavyweight fights ever. So if you go back 300 years to say that your father had the best, you know, heavyweight title fight, non-title fight, ever. in a 300-year history, who else can say that? That's not so bad. 
bad. <laughs> That's not so bad. And, yeah. And Patterson uh, came over. Patterson, as you know, Mitch came over and kissed him after and said, "You know what? Uh, they gave me the decision, but the fans love you." You know what? You know me, what? Uh, you know what? Floyd actually wanted George to come to New York and train with him. Because he said, yeah, I, I, I think he was really, yeah, he really, he really said, but, but George wanting to stay in Canada and with his family, I, I get all that, but I, I often think there were a couple of times in my dad's career where he could have gone a different direction, managerially or with trainers or something like that, and that's one of the, the time periods because I, I think my dad was really looking for throughout his career uh, was a soulmate, an intellectual soulmate, right? So, uh, you know, he he. He, he had trouble with his trainers who were limited. Um, he had trouble with uh, his managers who uh, he didn't feel were um, uh, knowledgeable enough about training. He was really looking for an intellectual soulmate in that regard. And a couple of times during, during his career, um, uh, that was one of them. Another time was a year later with the great Lloyd Percival, uh, who was so far ahead of the game in, turn of, in terms of athletic conditioning and psychological training for athletes. Uh, if George would have taken a turn uh, to the left or right there, things might have been a little different for him. Maybe not, but but I, I know that he was really searching for um, someone he could relate to on, on an intellectual level about about his craft, right? And uh, I think he and Floyd and Floyd was a Floyd was a thoughtful man, right? He was he was uh, yeah. he, one thing he, like he he was regarded as as being a thinking and 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 a well mattered polite guy. And, and a real intellect, uh, who was sadly, in the end, uh, struck by dementia too. But um, I, I, they had a friendship after, and Floyd always talks about that as being one of his greatest victories. By the way, which, which is which is high. I take that as as, as high praise too. So. Um, all in all, I have no qualms about the Patterson fight. George talks about walking down into the ring like that. He said it was, you know, aside from having, you know, your children born and, re and knowing they're healthy, uh, he said that that was, you know, what the greatest, like he was never more alive, I think was his describe, uh, his description and of Johnny that. Johnny Addy, right? Johnny Addy introducing him <laughs> yeah, the king of yeah. all Canada. Not oh just the king goodness. of Canada, the king of all Canada. Yeah, and, 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 and the tradition... Just walking into that tradition, George said he felt like That's, he was he was part of something larger than himself, you know. Oh, and, he was. And, it was all know, the, the first all the fighters fighters he went back to the eighteen hundreds. He walked yeah. down the aisles that John L. Sullivan walked down. That yeah. Joe Lewis walked. Dempsey, Lewis, you know, Marciano, yeah. all of them, all of them, you know. So yeah. So I look back on George's career, and he had some disappointing um, parts of his career, but then he also had some beautiful highlights, right? So um, we, we, like I tell everybody, we should all be that alive sometime in our lives. You know, life, life compromises all of us, but you know, to have a moment like that in your life, in your back pocket, for when you're feeling a little down, oh, that's that, yeah. that's that's. That's a pretty good piece of uh, you know emotional arsenal you have, right? So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I feel good about the Patterson fight, all in all, really. I, did, I have a story I have to tell you. Uh, at the Hall of Fame, uh, they were having a Madison Square Garden night on the Friday night. So your father got up to speak, and he's talking about the majesty of Madison Square Garden. I'm coming from mm -hmm. Toronto, and since I was a kid. Everyone in the world is reading about the majesty. And here I am, the king of Canada, walking down. And there were some fighters at the far end 
that were talking. Sugar Ray Leonard was there, but he wasn't talking. They wouldn't listen to Sugar Ray. And sitting beside me was Ruben Olivares. And he got so angry, he went over to them and told them to shut up. He was angry. And when I got back, I said, that was brave of you. And he reached into his jacket, he pulled out a, a wallet, and he took out a black and white picture of your father. And he wow. said whatever he said in Spanish. And Gene, Gene Aguilera, his interpreter, his manager, said, that's his hero. That's no, who he, he, he patted himself after. Yeah. And so he was in tears. You know, this is George Chavallo. It's my hero. Shut up. And these guys, yeah. shut up. <laughs> and so yeah. George was, continued. And, you know. Yeah, and, 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 and there's there's the tradition. All fighters fall in love with a, with, with a fighter that they watched growing up. They pattern themselves after in, in some way, shape, or form, and the tradition continues, right? That that's the beauty of it. We all learn from others, right? So, yeah, that 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 that's a gorgeous story, Lou. Thanks for relaying that, relaying that oh, to no me. I'm, my my dad loved Joe Lewis. My dad loved Joe Lewis when he was a kid. I remember seeing him on the on the cover of Ring magazine, and he, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, he was just totally in love. And when an opportunity. For Joe to, to, although Joe was not much of a trainer and couldn't pass on much knowledge, but, but just to be around the camps was good for my dad's spirit because it reminded him why he got involved with the sport in the first place, right? You know. Right, and you know Charlie Goldman, who trained Marciano, loved your father and he wanted to, he wanted to, um, to train him. So he no was kidding. the one in, in the early '60s, but Charlie was very old, he was in the '80s by then. But he yeah. saw him in New York, and he said, "George, you're throwing punches out the window. No, mm -hmm. don't Tight throw up. punches out the. Or I'm trying to get my head <laughs> situated here." He said, "Don't throw punches out the window." He said, "He said, stand your ground, turn it to hips, fire from the shoulder." And he got in the ring, and he was showing him. He said, "It's just a little adjustment." But from that point on, you know, your father flattens everyone, and to yeah. me, I, I mean. When George started, there were no, there was no Charlie Goldman or Dundee or Ray Arcel in Canada. There wasn't. There was no one to teach him. And as he said to me, he said, "I, I wish I would have gone through the sixth round and eight round." I'm not putting him down, obviously, but you know the learning process. George was put into 15 round fights immediately. He was a big name immediately. Yeah, he was a draw. Young. Yeah, he, he was a draw in, in a town that was starved for like a fighter. Uh, his, his manager at the time, Jack Jack Deacon Allen, was an older guy. He was he was in his last couple of years, so he rushed him. My dad was fighting guys in the top ten, Johnny Arthur's, and they, like after in, in in his first ten fights, that's 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 unheard yeah. of. That's like you know somebody goes to the to the OHL in his first couple of games in the OHL, he's playing the Stanley Cup champions <laughs> or people who competed for it the year before. It's like ridiculous. It's so rushed. And, and you can see that stylistically with George because George was initially a, a, a counter puncher, right? And and that was that was fine for people who didn't jab a lot, but for people who had great length, he had to learn how to defeat the jab. And he did that later in, in his career by, get, by getting lower and then using his feet a lot more. Um, if he would have learned that earlier on, I, I think uh, there's no doubt he would have been world champ. Uh, but, you know, again, it, it's finding that kind of uh, intellectual soulmate, uh, that, that father-brother figure that I think all athletes need to learn from and have a discourse with all the time. And, and George never really found that uh, in his career. And, and, you know, all athletes need to get a luck, little lucky in finding someone who can 
pass on, you know, transfer not, uh, who've been there and and have the and have the cred to go with it, right? And 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 are and match match wits because George was a bright guy. I, I think George can be uh, only described as an intelligent fighter. I mean, his intellect was 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 outstanding, and I and I and I kind of. I, I don't like it when people talk about him like a ne- being a Neanderthal because that's that's the last thing he was. He, he, he's a th- he was a thinking man's fighter. You know, if, if he didn't have all the, um, if he didn't have like, if he did wasn't a stick in boxing. If you stick and move, you throw a jab and you move, you're considered an intellectual. If you're an inside fighter, you're considered a Neanderthal. Those cliched stereotypes really don't hold under any kind of scrutiny and analysis. There's George. No, Fighting Patterson. Well, more, I would say he's more than an intellect in the, than in the ring because when I, he was, as we said the last time we were together, he was the first guy to stand up, the first celebrity to stand up for Muhammad Ali not going into the Vietnam War. Yeah, and true. so, and when I spoke to him, this is what he said to me. Now, who else would say this? He said, "The Vietnam War is based on the failed domino theory that if one country, if Vietnam became communist, and every other Asian country would." What other prize fighter could say that to you and discuss, you know, yeah, politics yeah, in East absolutely. Asia absolutely. and understand absolutely. it to that extent? And he absolutely. said that the domino theory was incorrect. It, it, it was obsolete before the United States believed in it, and they wouldn't listen. And and he said that's what you know that, that's one of the reasons they went after Muhammad, also because he changed his name, although he did it legally, and he was part of this you know very fringe religious sect. And he said they wanted to get him to Vietnam, and they weren't going after Joe Namath or Tom Seaver or other athletes. They were going after Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, based on of course. Theory. They 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 reclassified Muhammad. Uh, first of all, first Muhammad was not. Uh, he, I think he was dyslexic. He had reading problems, so they, right. they didn't rate him. Can you believe? Can you believe? Can you? It makes you think about in, uh, in- testing of the intellect. They said Muhammad wasn't smart enough to be in the army. <laughs> he was too smart to be in the army. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, he didn't. He he wasn't extremely literate in terms of his reading or writing skills. But uh, a sharp mind, a sharper mind, you can never find. Uh, yeah. But what, uh, the part I love about George is he said, um, yeah. And we're talking now metacognitively now, thinking about thinking. He he said. Uh, Muhammad is standing up to a lot of people in power, and that's got a wear on his wear on his brain. And he's and he said, "I respect a man who can handle that kind of pressure." And I think that statement alone cemented their friendship because with, you know, George kind of could empathize and sympathize with Muhammad's plight beyond the boxing ring, and then it, it admire him for still being able to be such a capable fighter uh, amidst uh, all those pressures. Right. So that that. That that really cemented their friendship. That George could see the bigger picture, which you alluded to, uh, uh, Lou, for sure, yeah. absolutely. And also that George always called him Muhammad. He never kept calling him Clay. No, he never no. he never insulted him like that. And that's one reason George is unique in that there are very few, uh, sad to say, white fighters that that were as close to African American fighters as your father was. Your father is exceptionally close to Joe Frazier. He always gave Frazier his due. He was exceptionally close to Larry Holmes, Floyd Patterson. He was even friends of Liston. So, you know, your father always judged a person by the content of his character, rather than, you know, he never saw skin color. Yeah, and well, you and, can't and, say that about a lot of 
you know, boxing is a sport of exploitation, unfortunately, in so many ways, right? Yes. So, so who gets exploited? You know, it, it's the it's the poor fighter. Boxing is traditionally the sport of the underclass, right? The people who are are, yes. are lowest on the on the economic totem pole, and and uh, my dad, you know, my dad was always. Um, uh, as you spoke of, the worried about a person's character, and that that was how he judged whether or not a person was a good person or not. Of course, not not by race. And when you're in when you're in fighting anyway, what you end up realizing is people are all the same anyway. People are all the same. No, They're right. all struggling for the same thing. They're all struggling for the same thing, regardless of the color of the skin or their background, their ethnicity or, or language or whatever. They're all they're all there for the same. They're they're struggling, right? They're, it's it's the struggle. It's it's the epic struggle. And and you respect people who go through that, right? There there's a there's a similarity of experience that, that bonds people together. Yeah. I, I often think of Definitely my not. dad and Teddy McWhorter. My dad and Teddy McWhorter. Uh, his trainer from uh, originally from Alabama, boyhood boyhood friend of Joe Lewis. They both end up in Detroit, and I and I think of the both of them together. And I, this one, this one, I have this beautiful. I, I I didn't experience it. I only experienced George talking about it. That after the Mike DeJohn fight in '64, they they or was it '63? I don't know, '63 or '64. Uh, after the fight's over, they go out to celebrate and they go to a rock and roll show, right? And and. Uh, the crowd was uh, predominantly black, right? And in walks George with Teddy McCorder, and and they're, they're welcomed like, hey, they're George of all the fight. It was just like, you know, we're going, we're celebrating a fight. Everybody's hanging out together. We're we're having a good time. And yeah, George and Teddy lived through some, you know, they they lived through the '60s and and that segregated area, uh, trans uh, transferring into the civil rights era, and everybody having more consciousness that way. That, that was a beautiful thing to travel uh, through uh, with Teddy by his side too. And they saw a lot of things together that, uh, you know, I'm sure if they were unpacked and described that there'd be some great stories to tell there too. So yeah, my, yeah. The, well, you know, the, the, sorry, go ahead, Lou. No, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. What I was going to say was, is even though it could be, it's a rock and roll show, even to rock and roll musicians, as you know, Mitch, being the father of a superstar and a hero, uh, not just a Canadian hero, a universal worldwide hero with millions, hundreds of millions of fans, is that you could be a rock and roll star, but George Chevallo is still way up above that. Because he's doing something <laughs> that people, they may be a star in New York or whatever, but George is known throughout the world. That's why when I spoke with Dana White and he said, you know, the most famous Canadian athlete of all time was George St. Pierre. And I said, that's, I said to him, that's completely laughable. Muhammad. What I said, George is, George is known on every continent on earth. He fought Muhammad Ali. Muhammad right. Ali is known by billions of people. I said, George could go to Australia. He could go to Asia. George could, George anywhere in the States. He could go to the Middle East. They would know who he is. They would say, George Chevallo, Canada. George St. Pierre can't do that. Only well, George Chevallo. The, the thing I always talk about, and Joe, you'd know this being in the media all of your life. Um, people ask me oftentimes what it was like to be his son as a generalist question. Right? Like, what was it like having a dad who was a heavyweight fighter? And what I always talk about is, you know, the exposure that he got. You gotta, as you knew, know, guys, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, the media was basically two things. It was newspapers and radio. Right. And the three, and the three sports that translated so well to, the, to those mediums were baseball. Right. 
horse racing and boxing right right so mm-hmm. george came along at a time where boxing transitioned from radio sport into television sport right and so it went from it went from the radio where he heard it a lot onto uh into television with tuesday night fights the friday night fights it became big time on on television it was it was that was that was the biggest piece of reality tv you were going to ever get on the fifth uh, on tv in the in the 50s and 60s right and, and and watching that growing up and being a part of that made him a much uh more visible uh, athlete than even though he he, he wasn't on uh, tv like let's say a hockey player would be every Saturday night in Canada, but still when George appeared, especially in the international market in the U.S. of A., that was a big deal, man. That was the, that was hugely big. Millions and, and millions and millions. Millions, yeah. And, and, and back then, yeah. And, and then your point about George being an international star, do you know that I still get on uh, Facebook people from Australia, Sweden, uh, uh, Croatia, uh, uh, South Africa, Ireland, all over the United States, South America, Brazil, always asking me about my dad. So yeah, the reach, as you say, was huge. It was it was it was enormous. And I think of that that's you know, um, yeah, he was he was uh, on TV, but uh, uh, that kind of it encoded it and imprinted on people's minds. So like fathers and grandfathers when. They- they talked about watching when they were a kid. They would, and and that people would that would somehow stick in their brain. Oh yeah, I've heard about your dad. Your dad used to tell me. My dad used to tell me about your dad. My grandfather used to tell me about your dad. Uh, uh, um, my sister-in-law remembers seeing your dad somewhere at some shop somewhere. So all those, I have all those memories. Like I get flooded with them all the time. So he, my dad will always be on my consciousness that way. For, for better for and worse <laughs> for better yeah, and for, for, better. for better for for better for everyone as you know at the hall of fame yeah. when he would sign autographs the lineup would be four five six hundred people waiting in the sun and he wouldn't rush anyone so a kid would want no. a photo sign an autograph he, kids were special because as you know george has this magic where five six seven year old kids will climb on him because they just feel that's he's their grandfather, so they climb on him, they kiss him. Can I have a picture? And they get a picture, and he, he always says, "How's school going? How's your mom and dad?" And he talks to them, and people wait, and it's usually like you said, grandfather, father, and son waiting to get this, plus other fighters. Ron Lyle waited in line uh, to get George's autograph, and George said, "What are you doing? Get over here! I'll give you my autograph." Line, you're Ron Lyle. But he waited in line with everyone else. So, you know, it's it, it was, I wish all Canadians could see that the lineup went forever. And then when he would go into yeah. the Friday night dinner or the Saturday banquet, he'd rarely get to eat because he'd be outside for part of it. They wouldn't let up. Just one well, more, mean, please, George. One more. He, 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 he'd make up late at night. He'd make up leading, eating late at night. He'd more than compensate because George could eat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I'm sorry. No, no, finish your story. Finish your thought. Finish your thought. No, I, I just the one the one part I want you to know about the International Boxing Hall of Fame and signing autographs is he would never charge for them. 
That's that, right. That, you know, other athletes would charge for those. And one thing I always yeah. loved about loved about his attitude there, he wouldn't charge. You know, he said these were people who, you know, who followed my career or knew of me for, through some other person, like a relative. I as I spoke to earlier, and he would never, he would never charge. He he would never, yeah, because you know that kind of love can't be you know bought or sold. I mean, that, that, those people would line up there, and, and that, always to a person they would say, you know, your dad's such a nice. He'd take a minute or two to talk to them. You know, he he recognized what a gift it was to be a public figure, right? So, um, and as and much as that people, could be, as much as that could be a your father that you've been the five or six or eight hundred thousandth autograph but for them it's the first time and your father knew what he meant to people so yeah. he knew how important yeah. that was when they came to him and my joy was to see these people walk up and look at him and then say and whisper they'd always whisper outside is that george yeah. Bell? Yeah. You yeah, think yeah. I can meet him? sure what should i yeah. do just go up and say <laughs> hi i'd like to meet you very friendly yeah. And I would, I would say, George, this is a doctor from from Nashville. He said he's followed your fights. And then George would say, great. And they would talk for a couple minutes. And George would give him an autograph. And that, this was all over the Hall of Fame grounds. And when when we went into the Saturday Night Banquet in Syracuse, um, there's this outer room with all these chairs. There's a set number of love seats. And we want George, I walked in with George and a couple other people and the seats were taken. But Mike Weaver and Ron Lyle and all these other heavyweights, the minute George came in, all got up and said, George, please take my seat. I insist. Nailed it. Well, it, it, there's yeah. there's that honored tradition you're speaking of, right? And, and in some way, yeah, you know, the, the old guys will always be um, remembered and uh, commemorated and a lot and, and and respected because you know like those were the people that the, the those fighters looked towards or looked to when they were when they were just coming onto the scene right and and heard stories about and 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 watched films of and and, and that that's that it's that honored tradition right yeah um the great the great thing about uh george is um his international reputation and uh, i i spoke to you before about this joe um pat marsden you know, he made such a, a beautiful telling statement about George. He said, people don't realize that we're talking about internationally, not domestically, but internationally during the 1960s, George was the international athlete on the Canadian scene. There was nobody bigger. Domestically, we had hockey, but hockey was a, it was a six, the NHL was, right. you know, a, a team league at the time, yeah. right? And, and not the whole world doesn't play hockey, of course. It's, People in Asia didn't know who Tim Horton was, is. right? And, and yeah, right. Yeah, and no, boxing goes back no, three thousand years to the first Olympics. Timmy's. This is probably yeah. a Timmy's. They know. They know Timmy's. Yeah, 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 yeah. There probably is now. Yeah, for sure. I, I better. And George, yeah, sure yeah. You you were mentioning before, Mick. You were saying how people mistakenly, and they just don't know boxing. Say your father was a catcher, but he to be in the top ten for fifteen years, he was George was an elite level top three ranked world yeah. heavyweight it's that simple an elite for a level. long time yeah a long for 15 time years. and you don't get that by accident I, you have I, to I learn love, that i love this picture it's so so um this picture is in the local barber shop where i take george for haircuts 
my buddy in the in the junction, Dario Protomani, cuts my dad's hair. Anyway, he had this picture up, so I got a hold of a copy of it, and it's it's such a great picture because that's the west end of Toronto, uh, somewhere I would think somewhere around uh, Davenport Avenue when it gets close to Old Weston Road. Uh, my grandparents lived around there, and and there's George in the in the middle of winter wearing it, what it looks like a you know I, I think he'd be maybe just transitioning into the early years of his professional career after an amateur career. And he's got like this, this, this stylish top coat on while he's running in, in work boots along, <laughs> along Davenport, the west part of Davenport. And, and it looks so suburban there. Now, if you go there, you know, the trees are mature and it looks like, you know, it's, it's more part of the city proper. But back then that was like, you know, that was like the outskirts, the Western outskirts of, of Toronto proper. Right. And now it's changed so radically. So that's a real nice kind of piece of history there. I, I, I like that. I, I like that shot. You know, there's a an little, little, little Toronto history. Yeah, but you, you know, I, have to, I, have to, I have to think about what my dad, you know, what back under you look at, how would they interpret him, right? How are they going to interpret his career? How are they going to interpret his life? And what, what does his career say about being a Canadian athlete in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? You know, what does it say about being a Canadian fighter? And and I and I think there are many stories yet to be told about it. You know, he, my dad's had so much written about him. When I when I really want when I really want to go on a deep dive with my dad, I go back and I look up your Louis Adolf as a writer. You know, you, you you get to like interact with the writer's brain when they're writing about you know someone as isn't as intimate as family relation to you, right? And and, and so I have. I have many versions of my father in my head, enough to keep me occupied for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I, there, there there's go. Mitch at 17. <laughs> you know, Mitch when I was a budding athlete. <laughs> Who has 1970s fenders and hair, man? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now you're a good football player, my friend. I remember that. Yeah, I, I was, listen, sport. I was okay. I was okay. I got injured. I injured my knee, thankfully, and I and I turned to school and thought about a career beyond sport, which was, you know, that that was good. That was that was an enabler for me. Like most people would say, ah, oh, it's terrible. You hurt your knee. Nah, it was it was actually good. I started to think about a bigger world, right? I, I think about bigger. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I, I must. So Mitch, my dad was very supportive about a career. We all come to all the games. Yeah. He was he was a great dad. He was. Dad's dad, that's really good. You know when I noticed well, most about that, Mitch, sorry. the pride in your father's eyes. The smile yeah. on your father's yeah. face. That picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, Mitch, you know, uh, I, I'm not... We, uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just going to say, listen, sometimes it wasn't... I, I don't want I don't want to sound morose or um, uh, maudlin or uh, like I'm... Uh, complaining, but sometimes it was tough being his kid as a, as an athlete, right? Because you know you, you're a bit of yeah. a mark, right? So I, um, the night one of the nicest things my dad ever said to me was, you know, he respected the fact that I could handle that pressure, and uh, you know, tests of resilience when you're a young person, if you pass them, uh, they set you up for later in life, and you know, if if you have a hard time with them. Uh, discover why and move on. You know, people often ask about what it was like to be his kids sometimes. And yeah, there were there were tough moments, right? There were tough moments, but you, we got through them. And um, we, we should all be, uh, life should always be an incremental 
test of you know your resilience sometimes heavy blows happen but uh, yeah overall being his kid as, as an athlete and being his kid was was a very positive experience for me mitch that's well Mitch, you to talk about this in yeah yeah and that when well, you I talk just, about sorry, Joe, uh, i just wanted to say boys we're talking in stereo when well, you talk about yeah i know i sorry I, I just want to, I want to transition there because you talked about resiliency and you talked about your dad taking those pieces, uh, you know, of, of memorable pieces that helped him, you know, in, in tougher times. And, and, and I can't think of any family that's had a tougher time than you guys did. And, and the resiliency that you've had to have losing three brothers, your mother, you know, and, yeah. and of course now you, you, as you told us earlier, your niece and, you know, tragedy has hit you guys so hard. How were you able to get through that? And, and, uh, and, and how how is you know George having to lead you through really you and Vanessa and yeah let's, uh, let's, I'll, I'll be honest um, I, I I think what I did was uh, a little different than what he our approaches were different and we've had some major uh, uh, discussions and differences on this Um and um, but that's okay. I I can live with those differences. Uh, what I what I essentially did was compartmentalize a lot of that and put it behind me. And I had to focus on the now. Uh, when those things transpired, there you know I had to deal. I was a young person, and and what I've always thought, because you know we all go through uh, hard times in life. On Joe, I know you have for sure, brother. Uh, I, I can empathize with you and Lou. I, I'm sure you have too. Um, but, lost my you know, mother when I was five. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, so um, it's it's a double edged sword because during those dark moments, um, what you what you really realize is what what you value, what you find most important, right? And yeah, you're going to go through some dark times when that happens, but you always got to be you always have to be pointed towards the light, right? And um, and part of the reason why you get so upset is was because you found meaning in those things that were taken away from you, right? And if you can find meaning in those things that were taken away from you, you can find meaning in survival afterwards, right? Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. And and um, what accounts for you feeling like that and somebody else feeling opposite of that and never getting out of that depression or funk or whatever you want to call it um what accounts for one person going one way and another person going for the other way i'm not a, i'm not a psychologist i'm not going to psychoanalyze people i know what helped me i immersed myself in work and i immersed myself in exercise because as a phys ed teacher i realized that um the the concepts of exercise eating well and getting good rest helped me mentally and hormonally and and i got through that now there were sometimes i was obsessive with exercise i'm not gonna lie to you like i work out like three hours a day you know it was it was crazy that's what i needed to get through it until i could say to myself okay now now it's starting to be obsessive and like i can't handle that what my father did is he reached out to people Right, and he got that. He got that love piece. I, I tell this to everybody. You know, my, my my brother died days of each other. Um, people would contact us from all all over Canada, 
and they would tell us their stories of, you know, terrible heartbreak and woe. And to know that there were other people out there who could commiserate with you on, on a really personal level and that they would take, they would reach out to you. Now we're, we're talking in the eighties and nineties. Now, now we talk about issues of mental health. So casually back then the stigma to even admit to those things. So those things were hidden. You put those in, in the family closet and you don't talk about them, you know, but I remember like all these people with, with openness and love passing on their best, asking they could do anything for it. I found, I found great strength in that. And I know when my father went out to talk to people and talk specifically to young people, he'd get that, that love, that feedback, right? His was more um, out in the open. Mine was a little bit of a quieter resilience. His was an open embracing it, facing it head on, facing issues. Now, now, family dynamics being what they were, you know, I was not the world's greatest son, right? I was not the world's greatest brother. And I'm going to tell you sometimes, George was not the world's greatest dad. Love my dad. Don't ever get me. I love him. I love him in spite of all that stuff. Maybe because of it, because he, he showed how he could be. But he made he made grave, you know, grievous errors with with my brothers and some of their actions and the things he did to facilitate some cer certain stuff. There was a family dynamic going on with my mom. My dad wasn't, you know, uh, the most uh, faithful person. He had he had all kinds of affairs, and I think that affected the family dynamic. There are economic issues when a fighter transitions into that period. After boxing, what do they do? They're, they're normally, they have very few fighters have a, a college or university education that they could fall back on. They're trying to live off a reputation that gets thrown, you know, to the side uh, as soon as they quit fighting. You know, and and people say cruel and and mean things about fighters uh, that they were say about other athletes. Um, I think people resent their their power structure in a way. You know, the fighter is the ultimate warrior really and then when when they're done it's kind of like oh that they have a tendency to just toss them to the side so there there are many things that happened in my family that were you know um problematic but uh i always had little tests of resilience along the way that i could fall back on and and i and i always found meaning in them and i think george found meaning in in connecting to people and talking about issues of addiction and, and 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 trying to find meaning in love and relationships and and i i think his message was strong and heard by large segments of the society uh it it, it, was, it could be at times a little simplistic for my rendering and we've had discussions about that he and i but that's okay we, we can agree to disagree on that and i know the the major point is i know he helped a lot of people a lot of people saw him symbolically as a piece of like canadian hard rock and resilience, yes. and I think that's going to be part of his, uh, of, you know, a hundred years from now, people are going to look back and say, you want to see somebody who was resilient? Brother, this this guy was cut out of, you know, the stone that that, that, that makes Canadian Canada shield. what it is. Yeah, the Canadian, very, very good. Right. The Canadian shield, George, George, is, George is made of Canadian shield to some degree. Now, right. I've had discussions with my dad late at night that I'll never tell anybody about. They're too personal, and I've seen him hurt. I've seen him hurt in ways no man should hurt. Right? So, yeah, yeah. I love my dad. Faults, all well, the faults, all, all, but all his strengths. So he, he was a human being 
but he was fully alive mm-hmm. as a human being. And, and, and I'm, I was so lucky and I'm so fortunate to have had him as a dad. I really have been. Mitchie. The experiences shared with him, ups and downs have been fantastic. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's been a roller coaster. But when it went, when it was it was a roller coaster. But you don't get those lows unless you've had those highs, right? Where everything's kind of monotone. Right, yeah. It's not the same. Been a hell of you know a lot of his family. And- not you say a hundred years from now. I think a thousand years from now is more accurate. I think he'll still be remembered. And if he isn't, then somebody like me hasn't done their job correctly because he'll last forever. He'll be he'll be known yeah, in, in my opinion. And in my heart, but in the opinion of all Canadians, all 38 million Canadians and many millions around the world, as the preeminent greatest Canadian athlete of all time, a man who was the WBA World Heavyweight Champion, and a man who was in the top 10. How many people in the top 10 in boxing in any division for 15 years and for most of that in the top three? He was an elite level heavyweight in his era, and that was the greatest era of heavyweights. And to be in no, the top I, three I, in that, yeah, yeah. you know. I, I, exactly, I mean, it was the greatest era. thousand years or yeah, more. And, and, and George, George is like kind of emblematic in the poster. There are a lot of great Canadians. You know what I love about your writing, Lou, is you bring to light people that, you know, Jimmy McLaren, uh, Lou uh, Brouillard, uh, Larry Gaines. Yeah, yeah there, there's so many great Canadian fighters out there, and people don't know their stories. But it, you, you, you get the backstory, and you, you get all the, all the things that influenced their lives and all the struggles they went through. The, I love reading stories about the humanity. That's the key. That's the key piece. Uh, uh, Joe, you had um, Ron Ellis on a few weeks ago, and I thought that that was one of the most beautiful pieces. Because he spoke about, you know, his depression and, and you hear the humanity. You know, everybody thinks athletes are just, you know, these decontextualized super people who had, you know, they had struggles and fights. And, and, and when you see their achievements against the backdrop of that, there's the part that connects with people, right? So, yeah, it, George just got a really, you know, pair connection between life struggle, struggle in the ring, struggle to transition to something after fighting, struggles with family. Uh, look, he's even struggling now, but he, but he's, you know what, he's fighting the good fight. We all want to hear about fighting the good fight because it becomes symbolic for us, right? And, and your piece on Ron Ellis was a fantastic piece that way. I, 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 I came away, um, yeah, feeling great after listening to him open up like that. You did a great job with him, you know? So these, these are the Frank stories. Appreciate that. Yeah, Mahavlich had an every breakdown because of Punch Imlac treating them so poorly. And like yeah. you're saying, that yeah. these guys perfect pressures. But the fighters you mentioned before, Larry Gaines, Lou Briard, if your father doesn't come along, no one cares about them. He brought well, them yeah. into the next century. If he you doesn't, know, if you your know, father Lennox, doesn't come along, there is no Canadian boxing. You know, Lennox. The great thing about Lennox is, um, you know, he he loved the past. And he always says about George, you know, George showed us it could be done. You know, he showed us it could be done. And, yeah. And, and, and Lennox in that way, you know, he, he, he got chastised about British, Jamaica, whatever. But there, there's a Canadian element to, to Lennox. And it's that gentlemanliness and that honoring the tradition and, and speaking like a gentleman. And when he does that, when he does that, he, you know, 
he he's one of the great Canadian fighters of all time too in in my books. Oh, and, and, uh, and he spoke to your father. He spoke before he went to England, and your father said, "There's no money here. There's nobody here. Yeah, yeah. you got to go. Yeah. To England. Yeah. You know? yeah, sure. And if you go to well, the States, you know, going to be, you know, so go to England. There was nothing here for for Lennox at the time. You know, yeah, Lennox is a class fun. act. You know, and and, and he does remind me of a lot of your father in that way. I mean, you, you don't hear anything bad bad said about Lennox by people who know him. You just don't. And all the stuff no. you hear about Lennox is stuff that people make up. And listen, if I was Lennox Lewis, and I went and I, I I won an Olympic gold medal for Canada. And I, my first fight is at Superstars Nightclub in, in, in Mississauga, and they can't Mississauga. even sell that place out. I was there. Right? I was there. Yeah, me too. I was there. And then, so, what are you going to do? I mean, you get offered millions of dollars in, in full-capacity crowds fighting at Wembley Arena in, in London, or are you going to stay here and, and, and fight for, for peanuts in, in uh, you know, the, the club shows here <laughs> in it's Toronto? It's a no-brainer. I mean, it's a no-brainer. No and and no, no, nobody on planet Earth makes that decision. And, and then everybody's yakking about, uh, oh, is he really a, a, a Brit or is he a Jamaican or is he a Canadian? <sighs> really, buddy? Really? Come on. What, what, Come on. What was that? What was like, that Maple Leaf I saw on, on his on his chest when he won the Olympic gold medal? What was that? That's right. Where does he and, live? In, 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 what, what does he live now? Today, right? When he was on, sorry, bitch. When he was on HBO, he was broadcasting, and Jim Lampley said, "It may have Lennox Lewis." The last uh, undisputed, universally recognized world heavyweight champion won an Olympic gold medal for Britain, and then he kept talking. and And Lennox said, "Just, just, uh, Jim, one mistake. Uh, I'm a Canadian citizen. I was a Canadian, and I won the Olympic gold medal for Canada. Canada taught me how to box. Arnie Beam taught me how to box. George Chevalo <laughs> taught me how to box. A and people, yeah. yes, in Kitchener. Adrian Tiedereskew. Yeah. 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 So, when I see Lennox and I see George, when I see Lennox and I see George, I see the Canadianness, right? I see that that right. respect, that politeness, that. That that certain element of restraint in, in what how they talk about people and the and the mannerisms and I think that's that's a beautiful thing you know I, I I'm and I'm 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 proud to say that they're they're friends right George always respected Lennox always said you know what George always said about him too he was super courageous he was a courageous fighter like he was brave right you know imagine never ducked anybody never ducked anybody. Never ducked anybody, and and the two guys that knocked him, beat him on knockouts, right? He comes back and flattens them both. Yeah, that tells you about yeah, mental yeah. strength and resilience, man. Oh, oh my yeah. god! And and oh, Riddick Bowe wouldn't fight him. Riddick Bowe no. gave up the WBC title no. rather than fight him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he went to yeah, Riddick Bowe exactly. in the Olympic. He went to the Olympic USA Olympic team during the opening ceremonies. He said, "Who's Riddick Bowe?" And they said, "He is." You're Riddick, bro. I'm gonna knock your ass the f out. <laughs> right before the game, I'm gonna destroy you. <laughs> and he did. And he did. Yeah. Yeah. Len Lennox yeah. was a good all around well, listen, athlete. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Played Lennox played all played all and other yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, I, I, we're going to wrap this up. Before I, we do, though, I, I mentioned this before. You know, we're, we're looking to boost boxing profile. There's a project I'm working on. It's called, uh, for film and TV, it's called The Belt. And uh, uh, we probably need your expertise in this. We're going to need your expertise as we move this along. 
my producing partners, Amy Goldberg, you know who she is, a writer, producer in film and TV, yeah. Meatball Balls, Hangover uh, franchise involved there. Uh, Maddie Jo Anderson, my, my daughter, who's amazing. Uh, Harris Goldberg, a director, producer, numerous films, Quick Draw, Numb, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, et cetera, a lot of different credits there. And of course, Lou, you know, the writer of this this uh, project, Ben Guyatt, uh, he, he's a Very friend well, of yours. Yes. So, yes, uh, yeah. so uh, let, let, let's tighten up the belt and get this thing going. Uh, the other thing I want to say is uh, I uh, I have so much respect for, for for George, and that's why I wanted to do this show today. It's like uh, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, he was my hero. Like I, I uh, when I would box with my with my brother, you know, we just you know, he was a little bigger than me, but I was always George. I had to be George, right? I mean, that's how far back it goes. And then, uh, and then, uh, yeah. So, so it was it was a fun thing, and and uh, we have so much in common. You know, losing a son, I know what the, the, the you yeah, know, the devastation that brings to a family, and and the, and, the, and and helping others is such a big part of, of getting through that. And I know that's what that's what your dad did, and he's helped so many people, so many people in so many different ways. And uh, you know, I just want to say that it's 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 been a real honor to have you guys on here to talk about George today. And uh, our prayers are with you, your, your dad, and, and your and your family, and and uh, make sure you give him a big hug for us, and uh, you know, and, and transfer that love because I know it's there. And uh, as guests on Joe Tilly Sports, we have a clubbing foursome for you. We have to wait a little while before we get to use that. It's not quite uh, the weather for golfing, but uh, remember, we're all in it together. We've got the Raptors, uh, Leafs, and Super Bowl news when we come back. And thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Always the best. Lou, great to see you. Thanks again. Always a privilege to see you, Mitch. Promotional consideration provided by Clublink. Clublink. One membership, more golf. Excuse me, have you heard of the new Divot app? There's a Divot app? No, but there is a Divot. And we're gonna have to do something about that. It's simple, just pick up the Divot and replace it. All sorted, have a good round. Addiction Rehab Toronto, Toronto's number one alcohol and drug treatment center, saving lives, Reuniting Families, the only treatment center in the province to offer medical detox, treatment, sober living, and lifetime aftercare all in one place. Our unique and specialized programs are designed to equip our clients with the tools to successfully lead a life of dignity, respect, and purpose. Let us help save your life or your loved one's life. Call today for more information or to facilitate an intervention. one 855 787 2424 or visit addictionrehabtoronto.ca. COSA, Central Ontario Standard Bread Association, providing a united voice for harness horse people racing at Ontario tracks. Check out your benefits today at cosaonline.com. Also, check out COSA TV on Facebook and YouTube for all the latest harness news and live action updates. Live racing year-round and go to freescratch.ca for your chance to win a new fabulous prize every day with COSA. Time now for our weekly sports analytics segment. Here's Kwame Bryant. 
Hi, my name is Kwame. I'm a developer ambassador here at Allegrand. And it's a great honor to bring the stats for today's show. Um, George Chavala was a great boxer, Canadian icon, never lost by KO. And we're known to of boxers to be, you know, strong hearts and strong chins. But what are some of the softer sides of boxers that we might not talk about? Uh, great, again, to bring the stats for today's show. And see you next week. Bye. Yeah, thanks, Kwame. I think we can answer this that question like this. I mean, we talked about it earlier in the show. George Chavallo has helped a lot of people. You know, boxers are some of the best folks you're ever going to find. Uh, sometimes the business of boxing can be a, a bit of a problem. We we touched on that earlier, but the fighters themselves, well, they're 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 awesome. Well, this is a strange set uh, set of uh, games for the Raptors. Uh, Tough stretch indeed. A quirk in the schedule has them playing nine of ten games on the road. Of course, their home games are also on the road in Tampa. But a great start to the road trip. Uh, club record 54 points for Fred Van Vliet. And a triple-double for Kyle Lowry and a 15-point win over the Magic in the opener of that round. Van Vliet is just the man. 54 points. And after the game, there you go, Fred. Congratulations, my friend. That's a club record. And the refs held their annual visit to the Sick Kids Hospital the other day. And Fred Van Vliet was there, too. Unfortunately, because of COVID, it was a virtual visit. My first question's for Fred. Um, which practice drill would Pascal say is his favorite? Defense. Oh, you can't see it. Damn. Oh. It's definitely not defense. I put shooting, and then if it's not shooting, it's spinning. Oh, <laughs> oh God. No, it's defense, man. So I have a question for Pascal. Um, if Fred was in a professional basketball player, what job would he be in? I think he'd be a coach. Yeah, coach. A coach? Oh, yeah, come on, man. <laughs> you know, no Fred is out there, man. He's a, he's a general out there. He, you know, I think he'd be a good coach, man. Fred, what do you think you'd do if you were? I would be a, a singer. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Would you care to demonstrate? Uh, nah, no, I got a sore throat. I got a sore throat. My questions for the Raptors are. How do you guys stay motivated with the absence of fans? It's definitely different, but I think it's almost been a full year now since we've had hey. fans, and you know I think we're kind of getting used to it. But uh, we all would love to to play in front of fans again for sure. Hi, my name is Rebecca. Um, my question is: I notice you wear a lot of different jerseys. So, which one's your favorite? Um, I think for me, uh, my favorite jersey so far probably be the black jersey. Uh, black and red. Um, yeah, the one that the Raptor has right now. Yeah, Raptor. Do they ever let you participate in the practices? And if they do, are there any players that can't guard you during practice? <laughs> okay, he's writing it down. Fred, cannot uh, guard him. <laughs> this guy, man. Well, former Raptor Vince Carter has just launched a new scholarship program providing tremendous opportunities. A $25,000 per student scholarship targets high school students who have a passion for sports. 
music, film, fashion, broadcasting, media, science, technology, engineering, and math. The application portal is open to applicants worldwide between the ages of 16 to 18, who will be entering grade 11 and or 12 in September 2021 and each year forward. Recipients will attend top caliber private schools with unique academic programs. Well, the programs are open to all. Vince Carter strongly encourages the black community, indigenous community, people of color and young women to apply. The scholarship criteria involves a review of academic scores, personal character, community service, and a 500 word essay. Applicants are directed to the exclusive application portal at parismedia.org slash community slash uh, or email info at parismedia.org. Well, the Leafs are back in uh, back in the six, getting ready for three straight dates with the Canucks. The Buds are coming off an exceptional trip to Atlanta, Alberta, that resulted in three victories and an overtime loss, vaulting them to the top of that all-Canadian Northern Division, at least temporarily. Defensively, they're better. Offensively, they're solid. Good balance in that power play. Well, it's been phenomenal. A couple line shakeups. Wayne Simmons will play up in the second line with Tavares and Nylander. Ilya Mikhaev has been bumped to the third line. Alex Kerfoot may sit this one out with an injury. We'll see how that goes. Got a good feeling about this club, folks. The National Lacrosse League has decided to scrap a proposal for the abbreviated summer season coming up due to the uncertain times that we're experiencing right now due to COVID. The league felt the best to point their efforts towards a full season, which we begin this fall. So go rock. The Jays have expressed an interest in free agent catcher Yadier Molina. The 38-year-old hit 260 with four homers and 18 RBI in a short 2020 season with the Cardinals. He's a career 280 hitter. Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers are getting ready to rumble with the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 55. Brady is making his 10th trip to the championship game. He's won it six times. That's a record, but he won't be getting number seven. Uh, it should be interesting, but Patrick Mahomes can beat you a number of different ways with his arm, with his feet. The Chiefs are the defending champs. They're going to make it back-to-back -back titles with a 37-24 victory with another Super Bowl MVP crown for Patty M. There you go. And, folks, you'll be happy to know our epic contest starts today. 12 T-shirts and three beautiful color prints to enter. Invite 10-plus friends to Joe Tilly Sports on Facebook and subscribe to Joe Tilly on YouTube for a bonus entry like the talented uh, like the talent daughter's Facebook page, longtime Toronto Sun cartoonist and sports illustrator Rob McDougall has provided us with some Mitch Marner t-shirts and some prints to give away, all original art. Rob is Canada's premier sports artist who has also done work for the Blue Jays and the Hockey News. We will notify the lucky winners. One t-shirt or print will be handed out each week. Good luck and enjoy Rob's work at robmcdougall.com. A reminder to subscribe to Joe Tilly on YouTube. You don't want to miss the latest news. We uh, close with a look at, at the folks who make this show possible. I, I re highly recommend them all. Uh, thanks again once, once again to Mitch Shavalo uh, and Lou Eisen for joining us on the show. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week when Marcel Dion and uh, Bernie Nichols join the program. We'll see you then. Get Aldo at Remax Crossroads. Do you want to buy or sell a home? Could 31 years of real estate experience help you? Why not speak to an amazing team that loves to overpromise and overdeliver? Call 416 Get Aldo or visit www.getaldo.com to find out what next level real estate looks like. RS Demolition and Excavation has extensive experience with complete teardowns and interior strip outs. 
Looking to build a custom home? RS Excavating Services has the experience you need to build in established neighborhoods. For the highest level of quality and cost-efficient results, we provide innovative demolition solutions completed on time and on budget while ensuring our number one priority, safety. Call 647-852-3006 for an estimate or visit rsdemolition.ca. Brian Gribben Insurance Planning, helping you solidify your financial future. At BGIP, what we do that's unique in the marketplace is we show people how to spend and enjoy their money in their early years of retirement without the fear of running out. Also, we're able to do this without you having to change financial advisors. Please look us up at bgip.ca today. Let's book a 30-minute phone call to see how we can bring value to you and your family in your planning. Call Brian today for all your retirement needs. We did. 905-686-5678. Gold Line Resources, discovering high-grade gold in Sweden. Gold Line Resources owns a prospective portfolio of four high-grade gold exploration projects located on the Gold Line Mineral Belt of north-central Sweden and one gold exploration project in the Skelftia Belt of north-central Sweden. For more information on how you can invest in this new initiative, go to goldlineresources.com or call 1-800-858-9710. Goldline Resources can also be found on the TSX Ventures Exchange as GLDL.